Hello friends, how we doing? Great to see everybody, or actually great to be seen, I think. I can't see you, but you can see me, and I apologize about that. Good to uh, see you. I think we uh, are still having a little bit of trouble trying to get everything up and running, and hopefully it is. So if you're uh, online right now and you're watching this, then uh, send me a shout out and say hello. And uh, in the meantime, we're going to keep, uh, keep going uh, uh, through our Book of Matthew study. We're going to be in chapter 17 and 18 today, which is a, a, a very strong, uh, strong message uh, about uh, several things that are going on in our lives, uh, including um, that call to be willing to forgive. Uh, in Matthew chapter 18, there are some really, really strong, strong statements that Jesus has. Uh, but let's uh, let's get there first. It's nice to see Jerry and Beverly here. It looks like Lenny and Joe are here and Eric and Cindy. Uh, so it's great. Thanks for letting me know that you can see me. Uh, sorry I'm not any better looking than the last time you saw me. But, you know, it, as the saying goes, it is what it is. And uh, that's one of those things that we just get to get to go with. Um, so at any rate, let's, uh, let's get into it. We're in, like I said, in Matthew 17 and 18, um, some really tough passages coming up, uh, as we, uh, look at uh, the whole idea of, uh, judgment and forgiveness in, in Matthew 18. But we start with this very familiar story, um, in Matthew 17. It's the story of the transfiguration, um, called that because Jesus is transfigured before them. And it's one of those special moments for uh, Peter, James, and John. Uh, hello, Kim. Glad you're here, man. Great to see you from my past. Uh, what a blessing you and uh, your family uh, have been to us. Uh, love you, um, uh, Shannon and her family, uh, all of our Lackland Terrace friends. Wow. And now Northwest. What a, what a blessing. Um, and Betty Cunningham, all our South Fork family. Uh, love you all. And, and miss y'all so much. Um, and so we, we look at the transfiguration. It's one of those special moments for Peter, James, and John uh, that they get to share uh, with Jesus. And not everybody does, uh, but they do. And so as we read through this, I want to ask you uh, to think about a question. And that is simply this. Um, why Moses and Elijah? And, and, and why this event at all uh, when you think about it? Um, so Matthew chapter 17, starting in verse, I don't know, why don't we just start at verse 1? What do you say? Okay. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Now, it's, it's already interesting to me because we talked about this a little bit when Jesus was calling his 12 apostles. Uh, Peter, James, and John are three of them, and, and this is how they're listed, James and John, the brother of James. Like John is only known through his brother. Um, and we think of James and John, and remember there's another significant James in the Bible, James, the half-brother of Jesus, uh, who is an unbeliever in his uh, brother, that he is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God, until after he sees him raised from the dead, according to 1 Corinthians 15. And then James becomes a strong believer, um, and, and his brother Jude as well. And both of them, James and Jude, uh, write books out of the New Testament. Well, this is not that James. The James that's talked about here is the brother of John. 
Except that's not how Matthew records it. Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. Now we remember who that James was. Uh, James, the brother of John, the sons of Zebedee, uh, that James was the first apostle killed for the faith. Uh, and we read about that uh, in Acts chapter 12. And it's, it's one of those passages where, um, where you're, you're thinking, wow, that's just, that's just amazing that uh, he died so early in the history of the church. And then his brother lived longer than any of the other apostles. And so his brother lived almost to the turn of the first century. It seems he uh, died in exile on Patmos sometime in the AD 90s. And he had lived all of those years, um, nearly 60 years um, uh, without his brother. And, uh, and so, um, uh, but let's keep going, shall we? After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. So again, as we keep thinking, be, be, uh, be considering why Moses and Elijah and what were they talking about? While he was, uh, Peter said to Jesus, of course, Peter, verse four is gonna speak up. Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. <laughs> I think Peter really wanted them to stick around. He wanted this moment to last a really long time. And so I'll just build a place for y'all to stay and we can, we can stay here for hours and y'all can talk and we can listen and, uh, and observe. Um, verse five, while he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, verse 6, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. Always, always don't be afraid. Have you noticed that? Even after the resurrection, during the resurrection appearances, one of the first things that the angels or that Jesus tells them, don't be afraid. Kind of think he tells us that today too, don't you think? Verse eight, when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. Well, this is just a really interesting story to me, really interesting story to me. It's one of those things where, you know, one of those moments where you kind of want to pop into the DeLorean with Doc and, and uh, Marty McFly and, and go back in time and, and relive this exact moment. Um, because, uh, you know, how did they know it was Moses and Elijah? Well, I don't know. Maybe they had a big M and a big E on their shirts. I don't know. Uh, of course, we know that Moses must have looked like Charlton Heston. Elijah, I'm not so sure. But anyway, they, they knew that it was Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah were there, and they were talking to Jesus. And of course, again, Peter, <laughs> good old Peter, he gets in the way. He has to say something. He has to try to do something. And, and so he says the wrong thing, and he wants to do the wrong thing. Uh, let, let us build a, a shelter or two or three for y'all so that you can hang out here for a while, and we can watch, and we can listen. Um, you know, uh, it's natural for all of us. None of us wants to be left out, and all of us want to be a part of the key moment when it happens. Um, uh, that, what is it, F-O-M-O, -O, fear of missing out. Um, and Peter, Peter had that fear in a big, huge way. 
And, uh, and so he says that. Uh, and then the voice, of course, comes, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. And it's not that we're not to listen to Moses. It's not that we're not to listen to Elijah. You know, the Old Testament law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, all books attributed to Moses for the most part, um, they're all inspired scripture. Uh, Elijah was an inspired prophet, and his words and his actions are uh, important in the Old Testament and to us today. But, but when it comes right down to it, uh, we ultimately listen to Jesus, just like Peter learned that day. As cool as Moses and Elijah were, and as amazing as it was for them to be there, uh, God says, look, this is my son. These others are important, and the book of Hebrews is wonderful for this, including comparing Jesus to Moses. Um, and Jesus himself would tell the Jewish leaders, look, someone greater than Moses is here, and yet you're not listening. Um, and God says the same thing here. The father comes in and he says, look, um, you, you need to listen to my son. You need to listen uh, to my son. And so they are terrified when they hear the voice and they faint dead away. And, and Jesus, of course, um, uh, lifts them up and wakes them up and, and calms them down and says, um, look, let's just go down. We've talked about this. Why, why this big secret kind of thing before? And, uh, and Matthew and his gospel explains that to us some, and he tells us that, well, you know, Jesus was fulfilling prophecy. He wasn't going to toot his own horn. He wasn't going to uh, make a big deal about who he was. He was going to allow people to come to faith on his own. And yeah, he did some incredible, miraculous things, but ultimately the incredible, miraculous thing he did was giving his life on the cross. And that was a difficult thing for some until they saw him raised from the dead. Um, and we'll hear more about that in the next chapter or two or three as we talk about what, what it really means to be the Messiah and what it really means to be uh, a servant. Great to see uh, my friends Mary and Robert here. Verena, wow, you and Don, yay, we have some of your family here at West Irwin. Hooray for that. And Kelly, um, love you, love your family. So, so, so very much missing you guys being here. Uh, with Jane, I know she does as well, and Shelly, Shelly and Mark, two of our best best friends of all time. Uh, love y'all. Uh, we're in Matthew 17. We're talking about the transfiguration, and I've kind of teased you about this a little bit. Why Moses? Why Elijah? It says they, they saw Moses and Elijah there talking with Jesus, and what, what, what is up with all of that? And I, you know, there are lots of key figures from the Old Testament that that God could have called to, um, to be there with Jesus, that God could have called to, to speak with Jesus. This is another one of those incidences, like uh, later on when he's talking to the Sadducees and they have this weird, wild story of this woman who was a widow over and over again and then went to heaven and whose wife will she be with all of these brothers. And, and, um, and Jesus responds to them with the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And, and he says, God is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and God is not a God of the dead, but of the living. And so there is a resurrection because Abraham and, and Isaac and, and Jacob, they're all very much alive and will live forever. Um, and so here we see that again, Moses and Elijah uh, here at this time, at this moment, uh, being raised in some form or another, being transfigured with Jesus um, they're talking with him. But why? Why Moses? Why Elijah? 
And, I, and what were they talking about? And I think the key to uh, the answer to all of those questions is uh, simply this. It's what was ahead for Jesus. As you consider what, what Jesus was about to go through um, and the remainder of his teaching and his life and being rejected, being deserted by all of his, his followers, Moses would know exactly what that was like. Crying out in desperation uh, from the cross, feeling that sense of abandonment and alonement. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Quoting, I think not just Psalm 22 verse 1, but thinking of the whole psalm. But who better than Elijah would know that feeling that Jesus had on the cross that day? Uh, Elijah, that one who ran for his life from Queen Jezebel and, um, and, and looked up to God and said, look, just take my life. They're, they've killed all your other prophets. They're after me. Just, just take my life. Um, and there Jesus is talking to Moses and talking to Elijah. Um, it's such an incredible moment. I think that this happened because Jesus needed it to happen and his disciples needed it to happen. They needed to hear that voice from heaven saying, as important and as significant as Moses, the great lawgiver and deliverer, and Elijah, the great prophet, as important and significant as they are, the one standing before you is even much more significant. And they can't raise a candle, they can't lift a candle to my son, and he's the one that you are to listen to. I, I think there are times in our lives as, as humans, we're all human, and that means we're not always on our A game. Uh, that means our faith, I believe that faith, and we're gonna see a story about that uh, today, I believe that our faith isn't, you know, right here and then we're baptized and then immediately it's up here. You know, I think our faith is more like this. It's, it's kind of wavy. There are lows and there are highs. And, and I fully believe that over time, hopefully the lows aren't quite so low and devastating and that the highs are a little bit higher and more consistent. I think that's what spiritual growth is. It's not uh, where you just you're, you're, you're baptized and then you're mature. That's not it at all. And as we go through our ups and downs, I, th I, think, I think one of the things that can give us comfort is that Jesus needed this moment. I fully believe that. He needed this moment. He was there talking with Moses and Elijah. And I think in, in other places it might say about what was to come in Luke 9 and in Mark 9. Um, they were talking about how he was going to be killed. They were talking about how hard this was going to be. And I have a feeling that Moses and Elijah were talking with Jesus about what, how they felt when they experienced what they did. Are you saying, Bill, that Jesus didn't already know that? Of course he knew that. Of course he knew that. Just like he knows what we need before we pray for it, he still wants to hear it. He still wants to hear it from us because he's in a relationship with us. And so Moses and Elijah are there talking with Jesus, talking about what's to come, talking about what's ahead, talking about how hard this road is going to be, and talking about how he will make it through and, and how the Father uh, will raise him from the dead. Um, and so the disciples go down, and, and, um, and then they ask him this question in verse 10, why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Uh, and we hear some uh, uh, looking ahead, some prophecies in Malachi and perhaps in other places. Jesus replied in verse 11, to be sure Elijah comes and will restore all things. 
But I tell you, Elijah has already come. And they didn't recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. And we know what happened with John the Baptist. He was put in prison by Herod, and ultimately he was beheaded because he preached truth. And he preached truth to power, just as Jesus would and would be killed for it, just as the early church, the early Christians would, and they would suffer for it. Um, And so Jesus refers to John, and he had said this already, If you want to believe it, John is that Elijah that was to come. He was that voice crying in the wilderness from Isaiah 40, prepare the way for the Lord. So this next story in in Matthew 17, beginning in verse 14. Hello there, Barbara. Glad to see you. And Jeff and my friend, our friend James Carpenter. Wow, what a blessing to see you. Uh, What a great guy you are, a special, special friend. Verse 14, I like the version in Mark chapter 9. Uh, And we'll refer to that in just a moment. And I have a little devotional message on my uh, Facebook page. Uh, You'll have to scroll down and you'll have to get through a whole bunch of wonderful pictures of our family, mostly my wife. I'll be able to do that. And and if not, you can go to our website, westerwin.com, and uh, go to our live streaming uh, page under video archives and look that up. Um, This one is Matthew's version of what Mark shares in Mark 9. Uh, beginning in Matthew 17, verse 14. When they came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. And Jesus, it seems, is a bit frustrated here. Verse 17, you unbelieving and perverse generation, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of the boy and he was healed at that moment. Then the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, why couldn't we drive it out? Jesus replied, because you have so little faith. Truly, I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. So a couple things about that. First of all, we know that the caveat there is um, it has to be according to the will of God. Jesus himself prayed desperately in the garden to have this cup of his death uh, taken from him, and the answer was no. Paul the apostle prayed that his thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians 12 would be removed, and the answer was no. And so we, we get that because we trust in a God who is greater than we are, who is wiser than we are, who is concerned for all the world, not just us, and who is concerned for us and all the world for eternity, not just now. And so he answers our prayers accordingly. But we also know that the power of prayer is incredible. In Ephesians chapter three, that great prayer uh, to the God who can do all that we ask or imagine, our wonderful uh, Ukrainian team at the uh, 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 Bible camps, the youth camps in, uh, in Ukraine. Uh, it was Team Imagine, a uh, great combination of two wonderful churches, incredible people, the Southside Church of Christ in Fort Worth and the South Fort Church of Christ in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Uh, what a blessing all of those experiences were uh, to me. Uh, an old buddy, an old friend from South Sand High School days. Hello, Joe. Great to see you. Um, we're in uh, Matthew 17, and we're talking about this story um, that begins in, in verse 14. 
And, and so this man brings his, father, his son to Jesus. And in Mark chapter 9, you hear not just Jesus' frustration, but the father's as well. Because can you heal my son? If you can, please help me. Please do something. And it looks like my uh, internet service is kind of cutting in and out a little bit. So hang in there with me. I'm just going to keep talking. So it doesn't matter to me. But you guys may have a little trouble. Hang in there. Don't give up. Um, this father brings his son to Jesus in Mark 9 and says, if you can help, please help. And Jesus, again, frustrated, if you can, everything is possible for the one who believes. And I think he's frustrated not just with the father, but with everybody there. But the father in Mark 9 has such an incredible response. He says, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. And so I won't share that whole devotional message again. You can find it on my Facebook page. Um, help my unbelief, uh, I believe it's called, from Mark 9. But I think that's where we are a lot of the time. We're wavering. Not, we haven't given up on our faith. We haven't given up on the Lord. Uh, but, but we struggle. And we struggle between faith and unbelief. And that should be our prayer also. Um, God, I haven't left you. I haven't given up on you. Uh, I still believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Uh, great to see Gary with us, Michael with us, others I know are as well. We're in Matthew 17, starting in verse 22. And this is another one of those passages where Jesus tells them and he tells us, look, being the Christ, being the Messiah, being the Son of God and the Savior of the world and the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings isn't what you think it is. You think it's some great power play and, and somebody comes in riding on a, a great white stallion with all of his armies and, and destroys all of his enemies. Well, that day will come, but that wasn't now. Um, and so Matthew 17, verse 22, when they came together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And on the third day, he will be raised to life. And the disciples were filled with grief. Remember earlier when Jesus had said that in Matthew 16, after Peter made that great confession, Peter said, no, no, Lord, that should never happen to you. And Jesus told him, you get behind me, Satan because Satan doesn't want that to happen because it will save the world. So Satan had a chance at the snap of a finger to be able to make Jesus the, the ruler of the world. But to be savior, he had to go through the cross and thankfully for us, praise God, he did. Well, I know it's tax time. Tax time is extended this year, um, but <laughs> what a price we're paying for that. Um, but it, there was tax times in the New Testament as well. And so this fun story where Jesus and his disciples are in Capernaum, this very important city in the uh, uh, district of Galilee, and, um, and uh, they, the tax collectors come to Peter and they say, hey, you guys going to pay your taxes or not? Remember Matthew that's writing this before he was called to be an apostle was a, a tax collector. Um, and, uh, and Peter says, yeah, our master, our master pays his taxes. And then he goes in the house. And before he can ask Jesus about it, uh, Jesus uh, asks him, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes from their own children or from others? Well, in our day and time, it's their own children. It's their residents. Although there is a discussion in New York State about uh, all of those wonderful people that went there to help uh, in the medical field, uh, whether they owe taxes on what they earned while they were there. I'll let the governor and the legislators of New York uh, deal with that one. Uh, but here, Jesus asked, what, what a, in the first century, it was uh, 
you know, others pay taxes. When you're the power, when you're the, the, the uh, nation that is in charge, you collect tribute and taxes from the nations you have overpowered and the people that are there. Um, and so Jesus tells Peter and responds to him and says, well, then we don't have to pay, but, but because we, we want to go the second mile, as he had said in the Sermon on the Mount, because we want to do what's right uh, without question, Here's the best way I've ever heard to pay your taxes. Throw a line into the sea. Peter was a fisherman. He does. He catches a fish, unlike Bill, when Bill goes fishing. And he pulls it out. And sure enough, there's a coin in there that is just enough for their taxes to be paid. Wow. Uh, where is that fish when we need it today, right? <laughs> well, that gets us to Matthew 18. And Matthew 18 is... a uh, such a powerful, powerful passage. Really just a couple of, of important sections uh, there that remind us uh, about um, uh, who, what is real greatness in the cause of Christ um, and also um, the call to forgive. And so let's kind of divide it up that way. First of all, beginning in verse one, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes uh, one such child in my name welcomes me. He's going to talk more about children in, um, in chapter 19. And remember, that's where he calls a, a little child to him and he has them um, uh, come and sit in his lap, and he says, this is, this is the, who's greatest in the kingdom, and he does kind of the same thing uh, here in the first few verses of chapter 18. In chapter 20, James and John, the brother of James, uh, are going to go to Jesus and ask to get the best seats in the house when it comes time for Jesus to come in his kingdom, and uh, the disciples, the others, are infuriated because they want those seats, and um, and yet what Jesus tells them is, look, that's, that's the way the world measures greatness. You know, who's in charge? Who gives the orders? Who has the power? Who has the money? Um, who has the servants? But that's not the way it is in my kingdom. In my kingdom, the greatest is the one who is the servant, not the one who has the servants. And, and the reason is, he says in Matthew 20, verse 28, because the Son of Man came to seek and to serve and not to be served and to give his life as a ransom for many. Um, he's trying to help them see that right now. He'll try to help them see that in the upper room when he washes their feet. And then he tells them in John 13, look, you've seen what I've done for you. Now I want you to do the same thing, not for me, but for each other. Um, an incredible, incredible lesson. Um, and so the, then the, the passage goes on and answers the question, how important is our influence? Well, it's kind of important. Uh, beginning in Matthew 18, verse 6, if anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. 
It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. Wow. Okay, so that last part of the passage first, that last part of the passage is um, overstatement, without a doubt. Overstatement for emphasis. And that overstatement is such that it is it is something that is um, uh, Jesus is trying to emphasize. It's a typical literary uh, tool. Uh, it's very important. Uh, let's see here. Uh, I'm going to get online here for just a minute. And um, basically what I'm doing is I'm checking the time so that I don't have y'all on here forever. Um, Jesus says it's better to take out your eye or to cut off your hand or your, or your foot rather than let that cause you to sin and be thrown into eternal fire and to be destroyed eternally and to be away from the Father and away from Jesus. Um, just like he said in Matthew 6, how important is the kingdom? We are to seek it first above everything uh, and his righteousness and, and we'll have everything that we need and more than we could possibly uh, want. Uh, and so Jesus warns them here again, look, if you're gonna, if you're gonna uh, be, be caught into sin, then do whatever it takes to not let that happen. But the first part of the passage here, we're in Matthew 18, beginning in verse six. Um, the first part of the passage, Jesus tells us about our impact and our influence. How important is it? Jesus says, you better not, you better not be the person that causes others to stumble, that causes others uh, to sin. Because he says that is, um, uh, that, that is a serious matter. We're reminded of that great section of Romans, most of the second part of Romans in Romans 12 through 15, that talks about causing your brother to sin and not being a good influence, but rather being an influence uh, for bad. And we, to love our neighbor as ourselves, uh, we have to be concerned for them. It's not just about uh, what we think and, and what we do um, and how we feel, but it's actually about our neighbor. Uh, and what they need, and how they feel, and what we can do to encourage them, um, and and so we we try to do that as best as best um, as best that we can, and um, and we're reminded of of wonderful stories of that. Uh, Paul mentoring Timothy, Timothy being mentored and taught by his mother and his grandmother, as Second uh, Timothy one tells us, Lois and Eunice. Uh, and, and so we understand that that is important. And at the end of the book of James, in James chapter 5, James warns us, it says, look, uh, you don't want to cause anyone to stumble, but rather what you want to do is to snatch them from the fire. Um, and that's what James calls us to do, even, even saying that it would save us from a multitude of sins as well. And so now the rest of the chapter here in Matthew 18 deals with kind of deals with church discipline, this very interesting passage that that talks about telling someone uh, about their sin and confronting them and then taking someone with you and then telling it to the church. Uh, that's in here that we're about to read. But I want us to remember the context. The context is set for that already. Uh, being mindful of those children, being mindful of those uh, brothers and sisters who need our good example. Uh, to be encouraged to remain faithful. That example is affirmed in this story that's very familiar in Matthew 18, verse 10. 
See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. I don't know that that means that we each have a guardian angel, as the term goes. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. My view has always been, and I think Ed Myers in his book on angels and some others, that's a wonderful book, by the way, um, I think that all of the angels in heaven are at Jesus' disposal. God can send an army of angels at any moment uh, to help us and to defend us and to encourage us. And so I think that uh, if you're you're just looking for one guardian angel, you may be selling yourself short. Um, Jesus says their angels in heaven always see the face of our Father. And then in verse 12, what do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he's happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, your father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. So let's keep reading. Verse 15, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses, as the law says. Matthew 18, verse 17, if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, verse 19, truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. Well, that last verse is pretty well known and used in a whole lot of different contexts, and maybe that's okay, but it's interesting the original context that Jesus tells it in. It's not about a church meeting together to worship. It's actually about a church working to try to restore a brother or a sister that's been lost. Again, you go back to context, the context of the lost sheep that is celebrated by uh, the shepherd who has left the 99. And when he finds that one sheep, he's happier about that one than the other 99 because they were already safe. And we know that this story in Luke's gospel occurs in that great chapter uh, in Luke 15 when he tells this story. And he tells the story of the woman who lost her coin and searched the whole house to find it and celebrated when she did. And the father who lost a son actually lost two sons. And one of them came back from the far country and the other one pouted like a little child on the front porch rather than go in and celebrate. Let's not be that older brother. I think when we read that parable, that's probably where a lot of us are if we're really truly honest with ourselves. Those who are in the far country, you can know that God will forgive you. Those who haven't left and are still home, but have a lot of resentment built up for those who did leave. Um, God is there for you too, and he can forgive you. And uh, that father loves you uh, and will accept you uh, back. Um, But that's a very dangerous spot to be in. Matthew just shares this story of the lost sheep and the found sheep. And then he goes right into this story beginning in verse 15 about a brother or sister um, who has lost their way. It goes back to the one of the oldest questions ever uttered by a human being. God has asked a few questions by the time we get to Cain and Abel in the book of Genesis. Um, 
And each time he's trying to call his people to search their own hearts, not because he's trying to gather knowledge. He's trying to help us to gather knowledge and to see things as they are. Um, and so when he, when Adam and Eve try to hide, he says, where are you? As if he didn't know. We were naked and we hid. Who told you you were naked? As if he didn't know. Um, and when Cain kills his brother Abel, it's where is your brother? And he knew where he was. He knew what had happened. And Cain asked that question, am I my brother's keeper? And the answer to that question is yes. You are your brother's keeper. You are your sister's keeper. Absolutely, the answer is yes. Uh, this passage in Matthew 18 affirms that in a great, great way. We go after that one lost sheep. We are concerned for those little children and others and don't want to cause them to stumble. Um, and in this case, that sinner who has turned their back on God, turned their back on his will, it's a very dangerous thing to do. And, and so we remember the words of Jesus in Matthew 7. You know that great passage in verse 1 that everyone loves? Judge not that you be not judged. <laughs> uh, that people tell us when we try to do exactly what Jesus is telling us to do here and say, you have no right to do that. Well, again, that's not the only scripture in the Bible. And so we take that into consideration. In Galatians chapter 6, Paul talks about this very same thing. And he says, when someone is caught up in a sin, then you who are spiritual, go to that person, but do that in the spirit of meekness and humility, considering yourself because you also can be tempted, remembering, I think he would say, that you also have fallen into sin. And so when we approach a brother or sister that we're concerned about because of their soul, it's not just because they disagree with us about some Bible question. It's not just because uh, they disagree with us about some other issues. It's because they have taken a step away from God. And as we do that, we do that in great humility and great meekness and in great love. And that's the overwhelming message in this passage uh, is, is that of love. There's a deep love for those children earlier in Matthew 18. There's a deep love that that shepherd has for that one lost sheep. And there's a deep love that Christians have, that disciples have, for other Christians, for other disciples. And so Jesus says, when someone is caught up in a sin, you go and talk to him. Do that directly. Don't go talk about them. Don't go spreading truth or lies. Jesus says, go talk to them. We had a wonderful friend, speaking of our days from Lackland Terrace Church of Christ in San Antonio. Uh, she was an, R, an RN, a wonderful nurse that is we think of our medical care professionals today and thank you so much for all the sacrifices you're making. Edna Mae Becker was an RN and she was also, she and Ron were wonderful youth workers in our youth group in San Antonio. They weren't the youth minister. We probably didn't have one at that time, but they cared about us and they worked with us and they had a son in the youth group and um, another son uh, younger than he. And if I went to Edna or anybody else went to Edna Mae, and, and started whining about somebody, she would stop us. And she would say, wait, wait right there. Have you gone, have you prayed about this? That would be your first question. And if it was sort of go, go pray about it. And so I would go back and pray about it. And then I would come back to her and I would start whining. And she would say, have you prayed about it? And I would say, yes, 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 I prayed about it. And then I'd start to whine and she'd say, wait, have you talked to them? about this? And if the answer was no, if we had not talked to them, then she didn't want to hear it. 
May her tribe increase. May her number increase. Oh, how desperately the church needs people like that. Needs to hear someone talking about someone else and cut them off and tell them that's, that's not right. You need to go and talk with them about it if you have an issue. And maybe they'll say, well, I did, and nothing changed. Then you go back to Matthew 18, and you say, well, Jesus said, if that's the case, then you take somebody with you and, and share this concern. And it's not concern to try to prove I'm right and you're wrong. It's concern to try to help someone get back on the path that leads to Christ, that leads to eternal joy. Um, and if that doesn't work, then Jesus says, well, then tell it uh, to uh, tell it to the church. Tell it to my people. Uh, get everyone on board. Why? Because that's how important this is. Because, you know, but I might hurt their feelings. Well, it's better to do the tough love, as James Dobson said now, than to see them lose their soul for eternity. And this is a very serious thing. This is not to be done flippantly. I think it's not even to be done often. Uh, because I think we have to be very, very concerned about that. And uh, and so I'm checking my time again. Uh, oh, yeah, we're doing great. Um, I think that we have to go to them. We have to go to them and we have to talk to them. And we have to ask them uh, what's going on. And I think before we do anything else, we seek first to understand, as Stephen Covey says, then to be understood. Before we start uh, chiming in on here's where you're wrong, and here's what you need to do to change, I think we listen. And I think we say, what, what's, what's going on? Uh, where are you in your walk of faith? Where are you in your relationship with God? Where are you in your uh, desire to follow God's word? And I think if we start out that way, then we're on the right track, and, and maybe we can um, help them see where they are. Uh, the loss of fellowship is a very serious, serious thing. It's the last resort. And there are some people who have taken themselves out of the fellowship and a situation like this wouldn't mean anything to them. And so what we do in that case is we pray that God would send things into their life that would bring them back to his people so that we can have that kind of influence on them. But see, this is exactly the opposite kind of influence than what he had mentioned earlier with those who would cause uh, his followers to go astray. Uh, here, it's, it's asking us to have a, a good influence, a good impact, to be willing to humbly go and talk to people and, and help them uh, to see uh, what's going on in their lives. And, and just like in Romans 1, where God gave them over, it says that three times in Romans 1 about the Gentiles, the non-Jews, who had chosen to live a life of immorality, who had chosen to live a life of homosexuality, who had chosen to live a life of idolatry, who had chosen to live a life of all those other things, sins that Jesus mentions in Romans 1. Three times, three times Paul says, God gave them over to that life. And he's not gonna force us uh, to follow him. In Matthew 19, we're gonna read another story about a man who had everything together except for one thing that was keeping God off the throne in his heart, and that's what Jesus called him out on. He has a way of doing that to us, doesn't he? We'll get to that story of the rich young ruler. Uh, but here he's talking about uh, going and trying to help that brother or sister get back on the right path. And the goal with this, the goal with this church discipline, as we call it, 
is not to take someone away from the body. It's not to prove a point. The goal is to restore. The goal is to restore someone. Now, granted, if sin is allowed to continue, just as Paul tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 5, when he gives them uh, a, an example of someone who was living in uh, blatant immorality and the church was not only not doing anything about it, trying to save them and help them, but was actually proud of it. Uh, he calls them out on that and he calls the adulterers out on that. Here, uh, Jesus is saying the same thing. He's saying this is, this is such an important matter. Better to have your right arm or your right eye uh, taken out of your body than to continue in that life of sin. Better to have a heavy object uh, tied around you and have you thrown into the sea and drowned than to cause someone else to stumble, than to not be there to help someone get back on the right path. That's what Jesus is talking about here. Um, and then this passage ends in verses 19 and 20 uh, with that statement about um, where the two or three of you are, there's power. Uh, the things that you bind, the verses that uh, uh, precede it, uh, it has power. It has power. Scripture is the only authoritative, inspired word that we have, so we have to be careful about that. My understanding of it, not inspired. Could be correct, also could be inaccurate. And so we want to humbly do that, but our understanding is all we have to go by. And so we seek to go by that. And, and we try to live according to that, uh, according to that uh, response. Um, and that takes us to this parable of the unmerciful servant that begins in verse 21. Uh, this is a man, and I told this parable in a modern day setting. Uh, if you want to go back to last year, 2019, in the summer sermons, you can, you can hear my modern day parables along with each of my sermons on the parables. Um, and, and this one is one where Jesus tells this story about this man who owed a great deal of money. Um, and, and, and let's just say a million dollars. And he went to the man and the man said, pay up or I'm going to throw you in jail. And he said, I, I couldn't, I can't, I can't. There's no way I can. And please have mercy. And he does. He forgives the debt. Well, as the man is walking out, he sees somebody that owes him, let's say a hundred dollars. And he tells him, pay up, pay up, pay me the money you owe me. And he says, I can't, please have mercy on me. And even though he had just been forgiven a huge amount of debt, um, he refuses to forgive him and he has him put in jail. But others are watching, Jesus says, and they see it in the story. And so they tell the, the man who had, um, who had forgiven him. And so he has that man brought back in and he says, why didn't you have mercy on that man after, like I did on you, for a much greater debt? And so he has him thrown into prison and he says, you won't get out until you pay to the last cent. Well, what exactly does this story mean? This story is about forgiveness. And again, when we look at that passage about church discipline that begins in Matthew 18, verse 15, let's see it in the context of forgiveness. When we hear those stories about the children and when we hear uh, about the sheep that went astray, let's think about forgiveness. That's the myth and that's the, the, the subject matter of this story. And I think looking at the beginning of it and looking at the ending of it, when you're talking about a parable, it helps. Jesus doesn't tell the parables out of nothing. 
They remember their stories that are very concrete, very earthy, very real and relevant, but they're usually based on something that is going on. And that's true with this one, especially. What's going on then, Bill? Matthew 18, beginning in verse 21. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? And I think Peter was thinking, man, that's a lot. That's a lot. I'm not just going to do it one or two or even three times. I'll do it seven. Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times or seven times 70. Either way, it doesn't matter. It's not about how many times. It's about being willing to forgive every time they truly repent and come back to you. Um, and so a few things about forgiveness before we um, go on. Uh, number one, our forgiveness doesn't mean God's forgiveness. Uh, God, their relationship with God is a totally different thing. But we can forgive them. Amy Morin has this incredible book out, uh, um, 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do. And one of them that she mentions is they don't give away their power. And what she's talking about there is they are willing to forgive. They don't hold a grudge. Uh, Jesus, in uh, giving us that second great commandment to love neighbor as self, uh, in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, is the original saying of that. That's where it appears in the law. And the opposite of it in that verse is not forgiving. The opposite of loving your neighbor as yourself when that law and commandment is originally given in Leviticus 19 is holding a grudge against a brother or sister. And so we are called to forgive. We are called uh, to forgive. And Peter asks, how many times? And Jesus says, every time. And again, it doesn't mean that God forgives, nor does it mean that the relationship will be restored. When I worked with the women's shelters in Arlington and Fort Worth, it broke my heart because here you had wonderful godly women who were such great believers and they wanted to do right and they wanted to save their family. And they would ask me, why don't I have to forgive? And I would tell them, well, yeah, if you wanna be healthy emotionally and spiritually, yes. Yes, you need to forgive him, but that doesn't mean you take him back. That doesn't mean you move back in. That doesn't mean you tell them where you are. Those are two very different, different things. And so sometimes if you're in business with someone and they defraud you and they betray you and they're dishonest with you, you can forgive them, but that doesn't mean that you're gonna go right back into business with them. Um, and that'll, that's, a, that's a hard, hard question. The things we're talking about are, are complicated and difficult. And Jesus doesn't run from those things, but he gives us the principles and the commands and expectations of God uh, to help us through that. Peter says, how many times? Jesus says, every time. 70 times seven, every time. And then he tells this story. And we're reminded of something else. We're reminded in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter six, in that great Lord's Prayer. Jesus is teaching us to pray, and there's only one part of that prayer where Jesus gives commentary on. And it's that statement, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And Jesus goes on to say, because if you won't forgive others of their sins, your heavenly Father won't forgive you. That's what this parable is saying. And Jesus brings that home at the end when the master calls that uh, unforgiving servant in and he throws him in jail and he says, you won't be forgiven that debt until you pay to the last penny. Jesus comments on that at the end of this story 
in Matthew 19, verse 35, he says this, this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or your sister from your heart. So a couple of things before we close today about, about forgiveness. One is it's not based on their actions. In Ephesians 4 at the end of the chapter and also in Colossians, uh, Paul tells us that we are to forgive as God in Christ has forgiven us. We don't forgive them based on their actions. I believe we don't even forgive them based on their repentance. Now that may change our relationship and likely will but we can still forgive. Doesn't mean God has forgiven them. That's a totally different thing. You see, their relationship with God is not affected by my forgiving them. Whether I forgive them or not doesn't really come into play at all regarding their soul's salvation, but it has everything to do with mine, whether or not I forgive. Jesus says, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. That's how he taught us to pray. And the reason he says is because if you won't forgive others, your heavenly father won't forgive you. We are to forgive the way God in Christ has forgiven us. And Jesus tells it again at the end of this great story, this great parable. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or your sister from your heart. Uh, don't be like this unfaithful servant. Don't be like this unmerciful servant who refused to forgive. Where do we see ourselves in the parable? Remember, every parable has maybe many points and applications, but they all have one main point. And that's the main point of this one. And so when you're looking at a parable, ask yourself, where am I in this story? And I can tell you, our, our, uh, <laughs> our typical pattern is to say, we're the hero. We're the good Samaritan. Um, we're the one who would forgive. Well, that's not why Jesus is telling the story. He's telling us to look inside our hearts and to find that person that we have trouble forgiving and forgive them. How do you do that, Bill? Well, first of all, you turn their soul's salvation over to God and don't think that your forgiveness of them is gonna matter at all about their salvation, perhaps indirectly, if it helps them to repent. But it has everything to do with your relationship with God and it has everything to do with your mental and emotional and spiritual health. If you're holding on to a grudge, do what that great philosopher and theologian and Bible scholar um, Queen Elsa says, let it go, let it go. You knew I was going to sing that, didn't you? Of course I would. Uh, but seriously, let it go. Leave it to God. What did Jesus pray from the cross? Uh, one of the things he said was, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Did God forgive them? Because Jesus said, well, Jesus had certainly power on earth to forgive sins. He forgave the, the thief on the cross from the cross. But I don't think that that necessarily meant that the Father was going to forgive them. What I think it meant was that Jesus said, I am letting this go. I am turning what they're doing to me loose, and I'm turning it over to you, Father. And that's what we need to do. And we'll be healthier, we'll be happier, we'll be more at peace if we're willing to do that. And guess what? God can be trusted to do the right thing. He can. He can. And I hope and pray that you'll be able to let go of those things. And if I can help, if it will help for you to talk to somebody, for you to email or text or, or give a call or a Facebook message and talk through this a little bit, that'd be great. Uh, but this is what God is calling us to do.
He's calling us to not be this unmerciful servant. He's calling us to be concerned about those who are away and to try to bring them back uh, onto the path that leads to life and, and to be willing to, um, to forgive. Let's close with prayer. Father, thank you for this great moment. Thank you for the rain that I just got to enjoy as I'm recording this and looking out our front window. Um, thank you for this world, even though it's in a very serious time. We pray for healing and for hope. And Father, we pray for our leaders. We pray for all of those who are working so hard to help. And Lord, we pray that you would remind us of that great story of the transfiguration, of the, the importance of Jesus talking with Moses and Elijah before he himself would suffer and how much that must have meant to him and how much it means to us during the times when we look ahead and see a very dangerous path. And Father, we pray that you would help us to remember the call to forgive, to be merciful, because mercy triumphs over judgment, just as um, James said. And that in doing so, Father, it allows us to fulfill that royal law of Scripture, to love our neighbor as ourselves, because we want to be forgiven, and we're thankful that you have done that. And so, Father, help us to be willing to love others as you have loved us. Help us to be willing to serve others as you have served us through your Son. Help us, Father, to be able to forgive others as you have forgiven us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So thankful we're on this journey together next week, Matthew 19 and 20, two great chapters. Uh, God bless and keep you always. Bye.